0: A podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories. There's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale. But do these stories stand the test of time? Or are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable? Bone-chilling or butt-numbing? Well, that's what we're here to find out.
1: Today, we continue our Listener Library series featuring suggestions from you, our mysterious listeners. Jake writes Greetings from Southern California. I love the show and thought I'd send one I've always enjoyed. It's called Wardrobe Trunk, and it's from Radio City Playhouse. Take a listen, it may be up your alley.
2: NBC Radio City Playhouse was a half hour anthology series featuring mostly thrillers, but occasionally comedy and light drama, too. The series ran from June 3rd, 1948 to January 1st, 1950. It was one of several high-end anthology series produced by NBC. These types of sustained programs were paid for by the network rather than an outside sponsor. This allowed for more creative freedom and occasionally more challenging content. Other sustained NBC anthologies include NBC Short Story, which adapted short stories from both modern and classic authors, and NBC University Theater, which offered literary adaptations of such excellence. Many universities
0: offered actual college credit for listening to them. My kind of college. Radio City Playhouse built each episode as an attraction, numbering them Attraction 1, Attraction 2. You get the idea. The premiere attraction, Long Distance, was written by the series director and the announcer, Harry W. Junkin. Often compared to Sorry, Wrong Number from Suspense, Long Distance was a sensation when it first aired, but has been eclipsed over the years by the Agnes Moorhead classic. We'll definitely be revisiting this forgotten gem sometime in the near future.
1: Jake's pick, The Wardrobe Trunk, was adapted from a short story by William Irish, a pen name of Cornell Woolrich. Woolrich's bleak tales treated criminals and victims as indistinguishable, putting his protagonists through anguish and torment as a figurative or sometimes literal ticking clock brought them closer and closer to doom. His stories had a significant effect on film noir. Between 1938 and 1956, Hollywood adapted 17 of his works, including the short story It Had to Be Murder, better known as Rear Window. Radio loved Woolrich, too. His stories found a home on Escape, Molay Mystery Theater, Sleep No More, Lux Radio Theater, and even Quiet Please. However, no radio show fit Woolrich better than Suspense. Over the course of its 20-year history, Suspense featured a whopping 23 Woolrich stories, making him the program's
2: most adapted author. And now, The Wardrobe Trunk from NBC Radio City Playhouse, originally
0: broadcast April 4th, 1949. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen
3: to the voices. The National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse. Attraction thirty one. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the
4: director of Radio City
3: Playhouse, Harry W. Duncan. Thank you, Bob. Friends,
4: it is once again our privilege to welcome a very talented actor to his first appearance on Radio City Playhouse. Our star tonight is David Gothard, a young man who has been a member of that very limited circle of top-notch radio actors for some eight years. Here is David Gothard as Babe Sherman in Wardrobe Trunk, Attraction 31 on Radio City Playhouse.
3: only not answered when she knocked at the door. If I'd only kept quiet, she'd have gone away. She'd have thought I was out and gone away. I was what they call working Paris. In a big city, it's pretty easy to pick up money without attracting too much attention ponies, gambling, a little blackmailing, married women who don't like their husbands to know what they're doing. All right, so I'm a heel. The fact remains that nothing would have happened if I just kept quiet when she knocked at the door. Therese Germain, her name was, tiniest girl I ever saw. She was like a little bird, fragile, delicate. I spotted her selling some guy a gold cigarette case in one of the best jewelry stores in the Rue de la Paix. When I try, I can make quite an impression. Therese wasn't any different from the rest. The build-up took a month, taking her to lunch every day, calling for her every night, ignoring the stuff in the showcases as though it didn't exist. I had to tear my eyes away from it, pretend I wasn't interested, and look down at her. On the day it happened, we'd had lunch together. I took her back to the store and... She insisted on showing me some pearls. She insisted. As though I didn't know exactly what I was after.
5: You must look at these. They are so, so beautiful.
3: (laughs) Not as beautiful as you.
5: (laughs) Look at them. Are they not beautiful?
3: Yeah, I guess so.
5: So pale. Shimmering like the streetlights. when there is the fog.
3: Well, how much? Just tell me and I'll buy them for
5: you. <laughs> oh, I think for the moment, uh, in your money, it's $75,000. To wear
3: around your neck? <laughs> <laughs> Try them on.
5: Oh, I, I think I should not. silly Oh, come but on, come
3: on. Let's see how they look on you. Uh, turn around. I'll fasten
5: them. All right.
3: Oh, wait a minute. I think the clasp is broken. I...
5: <gasps> oh, I'm sorry. Rick to raise it. Oh, give them to me.
3: Wait, wait. Well, you better put them
5: away. Yes, yes. You go now. I see you tonight.
3: You see me tonight positively.
5: The same place? About eight? <laughs> About eight.
3: Love me? Ah, uh,
5: dear, are not. I... Now, Coco, I must get to work.
3: Okay, honey. See you tonight. I'd deliberately let the pearls drop to the floor and then stooped to pick them up. It was a cinch to make the switch. The ones she put back in the case weren't worth more than a hundred bucks. I left the shop like I was on air. That was it. I'd done it. I would never have to see her again. I had a ticket on the American Statesman sailing from Cherbourg the next day at one. That night I went to a movie alone. A good, solid American movie. Lana Turner. I'd had enough of French women. I came home and slept just fine. I had to be up at seven... The boat train left at eight. The packing didn't take long. And I was so glad to be getting out of Paris that I felt like singing.
5: East
3: side, west side... All when I feel like singing family. at 7.15 in the morning, <mitigate> things have to be just London Bridge is falling down... That's the way they were at 7.15 in the morning. Hello? Here's Fortress, Mr. Sherman? Well, speak English, can't you? No, I've just one piece of wardrobe trunk. It'll be ready in ten minutes if you come up. All right, thanks. Let's see. Shirts, ties, underwear, socks. (sighs) That's everything. All right, all right. I told you ten minutes. Can't you tell the time? That's when I shouldn't have answered the door. I should have known that it wasn't the porter. He couldn't have gotten upstairs in 30 seconds, but I didn't think. I never dreamed. All right, I'm coming. Trace, I I told you not to come here. I told you. Oh,
5: baby, you're safe. But of course I'm safe. I imagine all sorts of things that you're killed with a taxi. Oh, don't be ridiculous. I wait last night for hours and hours. Oh,
3: Therese.
5: You're not coming poor Therese to worry. to does sleep.
3: Look, I told you not to come. Here, go down to the corner and wait at the coffee No, shop. no. I'll meet you and we'll have breakfast. Everything's fine, Therese. You're There's no again.
5: Get... The you're backing. Oh, Pete,
3: keep your voice down.
5: going away. You're leaving, Therese. You're going. to say no for I can see. Shut up, will you? No, I will not shut up. You cannot do this to me. I... All right, come in, come in. But for kids' sake, keep your voice you down. You cannot do this to me, baby, please. You're the filth man I love like this. Please, baby, you cannot do this. Look,
3: look, Therese. Look, look here, take my handkerchief. Yes. Now stop crying and listen. I... What's the matter, Therese? Therese, what is it? I. Well, don't stand there staring at me.
5: Look, I can see them hanging from your pocket, the filth.
3: Just a little present for my mother.
5: Let me see. Now,
3: don't get excited. Let
5: me see, I Will you keep quiet? Give them to me. Don't get excited, Therese. Is there a present for your mother? Let me see no. them. You stole them. When you dropped them yesterday, you stole Shut up. them. You stole keep them. Keep your voice down. Give them to me.
3: <coughs> All right, you asked for it. You're a dumb little French dame and you're duller than a pair of Oh. The build-up was strictly professional. The dinners, the dancing, the golf strictly for business. I got the pearls, and I switched another string. And unless you keep quiet, they'll think you did it.
5: You big, 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 big!
3: We were both at a fight heat of rage and hate and fear. I was scared stiff at the noise she was making. I, I put my hand over her mouth. She got away and made for the door. I grabbed her, and she started to scream again. Then I heard the porter outside the door and I grabbed her around the throat. All of a sudden, she went limp. Dead limp. Like a Roman candle bursting in my face that thought hit me that she was dead. She told me that her heart was bad. I didn't mean to strangle her. I didn't hold her more than ten seconds. Nobody strangled that fast. Her, her heart just stopped. To...
5: She
3: just died on me like that. Even though I knew it was useless, I... I tried to bring her true. I tried with everything in me to make her live again.
5: Therese. Therese. Oh, dear God
3: Almighty, what have I done to me? Who is it?
5: Monsieur. La malle, c'est prêt. What? Il tranc of monsieur. It... It's, it's
3: not packed yet. Come back in ten minutes.
5: Monsieur, we will miss the train. It is already 7.30. Ten minutes. Oh, monsieur. Stop
3: yelling at me. When I'm ready, I'll call you.
5: Yeah, monsieur, but only you'll miss your train. What
3: can I do? What can I do? I can't leave her here. They'll find her ten minutes after I'm gone. the train takes five hours to Sherberg, they can stop me with a telegram that takes 20 minutes.
5: What'll I do? Then,
3: looking at the trunk, I knew. I'd have to take her with me. Once we got to sea, I'd throw her overboard. Like all wardrobe trunks, one side was entirely open for suits. The other was a scramble of little holes and drawers. It wasn't a particularly well-made trunk. I pulled out all the drawers, ripped out the thin, last partitions until both sides were wide open. Just the metal shell remained. She was very tiny. When I was through, nothing was left out. I got back every nail, every board, every flattened drawer. And then I got it shut. Porter.
5: Porter. Porter! Yes, monsieur, I'm coming. I'm coming. Monsieur Treadner is but twenty minutes before they. Shut up and
3: get moving. This thing goes right in the taxi with me, understand? No, monsieur. You what?
5: I don't understand, monsieur. It's impossible. It is too big.
3: In the taxi. I said double fare, triple fare, but in the taxi. Now get going. We got it into the taxi. I was sweating and panting, almost sick. That taxi driver would never forget me, never. If they asked him afterwards about a guy with a trunk, he'd be able to draw them a picture. The same thing happened at the station. An argument that it was too big to go into the train department with me. Finally, I got my way and they put the trunk in with me. I sat down as if the seat were magnetized. Just slumped. Sick with relief and... Well, just sick. Then... I saw his name, E.B. Fowler, on his luggage. He was sitting across from me reading a paper. And I knew he was a cop, an American cop. I knew it. I could feel it, sense it. I ached with it. I tried to figure out whether he was city or federal. Maybe an assignment in Paris that hadn't worked out. But when he spoke, I knew he was a cop. I knew he had me spotted the moment he said were you work in Paris, bud? Were you work in Paris, bud? How'd you find it? Do we have to get sociable? I was just wondering, the fuss you made getting that trunk on the train. What's in it, anyway? The Eiffel Tower.
4: Okay, what's your name?
3: What are you, an income tax blank?
4: No, no, I tell fortune. You want to hear yours?
3: The first night out, you'll drum up a little game. A friendly little game. for nickels and dimes, just to make it interesting. And the night before we dock, you'll make a killing. Oh, drop it, drop it. Okay, I'm only fooling. Oh, be careful, I'll die laughing. No, you won't, kid. You won't die laughing. Sherberg showed about one o'clock. I was out in the vestibule with a trunk ten minutes before the train started to slow down. It ran right out onto a double-decker pier broadside to the boat. I thank God for American ships. An American steward who spoke English. And it started again. The trunk was too big for the cabin, they said. I'm sorry, sir, but we don't allow heavy luggage in the cabin. I've got to have it in my cabin. I'm sorry, sir, but it's too large. It's the only piece of luggage I've got. Surely I can have it with me for a day or so just till I get it unpacked. Perhaps you could open it here, sir. Remove the things you need for the trip, and then you've got to go in my cabin, and that's that. (sighs) What cabin are you in, sir? 42 A. Well, that's a cabin for two, sir. You're sharing it with somebody. I'm afraid a thing that size would be annoying Look, to the gentleman Stuart, who... If the gentleman wants the trunk in the cabin with him, let him have it. Listen, Fowler, why don't you mind your own business? It is my business. What do you mean? I'm in 42A myself. I don't need much room. Let him have the trunk, steward. Very well, sir. See you later, Sherman. We'll have lots of time to get to know each other. Sitting in that cabin
4: all the way home.
3: I knew what had happened. Fowler had been standing behind me. I knew by the way the steward's opposition flattened like ice cream under a blowtorch that Fowler had placed his badge behind my back. He'd sized me up as off-color. Now he was baiting me. Baiting me the way they'll bait any guy on the other side of the fence, not sure, just suspicious and hoping for the worst. I had to get out of that cabin. They just had to change me. I couldn't cross the Atlantic with Fowler sleeping across from me or I'd go nuts. I hurried on board and made for the purser's office. There was a lineup, but finally I made it. You're welcome, madam. Hope you have a nice crossing.
5: Thank you very much. You've been very kind.
3: Yes, sir. Any uh, spare cabin? I think so, sir. I, um, I, I find I'm sharing mine and I'd prefer to be alone. Well, I think that can be arranged. What cabin are you in now? 42A. Is that Sherman? That's right. I'm sorry, Mr. Sherman. I'm afraid there's nothing available at the moment. But if anything comes up, I'll give you first choice. Fowler had beat me to it. He'd foreseen this move. He'd placed his badge and told them to leave things as they were. But he couldn't know what was in that trunk. He couldn't. He was playing a hunch. He knew I was nervous, and he was playing a hunch. I paced the deck until it began to get dark. It was hot July weather. I couldn't leave her in the trunk any longer. It was a small cabin. and I had to get rid of her that night. Finally, after I'd had four straight scotches in the bar, I went down to cabin 42A.
4: Well, I was wondering when you'd show
3: up. The idea... Window shut, fan off. Can't be that chilly in July. Why all the yen for ventilation? What do you mean? You a fresh air fiend. Not especially, just like a little breeze, that's all. Why? Oh, why shouldn't I? I don't know. Go ahead, open the window. Okay, thanks. Not much breeze yet. There's enough. Enough for what? What's biting you, Fowler? Nothing, nothing at all. All right, then pipe down. What makes you so edgy? I'm not edgy. You just get on my nerves, that's all. Is there something on them already? Now, look here, Fowler. No, no, let's not get excited. Let's go down and have dinner. I got up off the bunk, took off my shirt, and threw it over the trunk. Then I took a long time washing my hands and face. I watched him every minute. I could see every movement he made in the mirror above the wash basin. He took a bottle of liquid shoe polish out of his bag, unscrewed the top, laid the bottle on the trunk. Then he started to clean a pair of blue suede shoes. I saw him deliberately upset the bottle all over my shirt. I saw him. <laughs> did that on purpose. Now, look, Mr. Sherman, I saw you. I saw you deliberately knock it over. I'm awfully sorry. I didn't mean to. I'll be glad to pay for your shirt. What's it worth? Five dollars, ten dollars, you say? You'll have to loan me one of yours. Mean to say you haven't another shirt in that young bungalow you're carrying? Listen to my mark, lousy or something. What are you hounding me for? I'm not hounding you. I'm just curious. I never saw a man so concerned about a trunk. Every time anybody touches it or moves it, you scream like a stuck monkey. That makes me curious. I don't like being curious. Oh, you don't. No, I don't. Now, come on. Open it up. Get a fresh shirt.
4: Come on down and we'll have some dinner.
3: Nuts, I'll have my dinner sent in.
4: Okay, Sherman. Have it your way. There's no hurry. We got eight days.
3: He finished dressing and went down to dinner alone. I locked the cabin door. And gritting my teeth, I opened the trunk. I didn't look. I just grabbed for shirts, underwear, ties, pajamas. Then I heard Fowler coming back. I'd fallen for it. He'd walked down the passageway and then come back. I couldn't get it shut again. It it wasn't her. It was all the wood and the stuff I'd piled in. I, I, I tugged at it. It wouldn't shut Oh, dear heaven, make it shut. Make it shut, please, make it shut. Hey, what is this, a lockout? And then I saw it. My hairbrush between the edges at the bottom. I grabbed at it, shoved it back in. And it closed. I, uh, I didn't know the door was locked. I did, before I even tried the handle. I forgot my pipe. Oh, yeah? That's right. Uh, clean shirt. I see you opened it. What's my trunk? What are you carrying? Dope? Oh, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Jewelry? Perfume? What? Just you try and find out. I'll find out, all right. Now that you got a clean shirt, you're still going to eat in here alone? I went down to the dining room, but I didn't sit with him. I ate... I couldn't taste anything. I didn't even know what I was eating. After dinner, I went back to the cabin and flung myself down on the bunk fully dressed. Sheer nervous prostration made me sleep. When I woke, the luminous hands on my watch said three o'clock. A thin shaft of light from the transom above the door made the room a little lighter than pitch dark. I could hear Fowler in the opposite bunk. His breathing was regular. In. Out. I listened. For for an hour, I listened. There's an art in pretending to be asleep. Nobody can do it for a whole hour. His breathing never varied, not by a catch or a gurgle. I had to get her out of that trunk. I had to. Either I did it tonight or it was finished. I made up my mind to try it. I edged out of the bunk, slowly. I didn't make a sound. I got the key from my pocket... Got the key into the lock. I turned. I twisted. It, it wasn't open. Oh, dear, dear heaven, make it open. And then it turned. With hardly a sound, it turned. And Fowler went on breathing. Breathing. Then I went at the snaps. They were on springs, and they sounded like firecrackers exploding. Every noise I died Waiting for his breathing to stop Waiting for him to sit up To pull a gun to flash his badge I covered the clasps with my handkerchief Finally I got them all open and I started to tuck at it I never heard such noise To me it sounded like an explosion deafening But Fowler went on breathing In, out Inch by inch I forced it open Slowly Silently I'd gotten it open It took me 15 minutes But I'd done it I lifted her out She was like a doll Like a beautiful sleeping doll I got through the door I stood with her in my arms A passageway I stood there sweating Shaking, terrified And then I heard someone coming Someone was coming along the passageway. I pressed back into the recessed doorway, holding her in my arms, and the footsteps came nearer and nearer and
5: nearer. Wonderful evening, Gerald. <laughs> See you in the morning. Now, don't ask if you can come in. It's nearly 3.30. What? <laughs> Good night, Gerald. Good night, darling. Good night.
3: tiptoed along the passage. I climbed the flight of stairs at the end without making a sound. At the top, I had to open a heavy sliding door. In an instant, I was out on the deserted deck. I made for the stern of the boat. I hadn't gone 50 yards until I heard his footsteps behind me. I knew it was Fowler. He'd catch up with me in a matter of seconds. He'd see me, see her, see everything. I knew I'd have to face him, so I put her down on a deck chair and threw a blanket over her. And then I... I turned to face Fowler. All right, Sherman, here's my badge. FBI, I'd like to talk to you. What about? What did you take out of that truck? Wouldn't you like to know? It's an easy thing to speak to the captain and have it searched. All right, go ahead, have it searched. I'll have you searched, too. Go ahead. Come along, Like now. the devil, I will. I'm staying here. You're coming with me. I'm not. Now, look, Sherman, I got a gun. I'm a federal agent. I'm ordering you to come with me, and if you put up a fight, I'll slug you. Now, be a good... Who's that? Who? The dame in the deck chair. I... I don't know. Oh, you got a shill working with you. I don't know who she is. Well, let's go over and introduce ourselves. I hit him. I hit him with everything I had. He spun like a top. I hit him again and he stumped over the rail. Then I grabbed his feet and heaved. It didn't take a second to go back for her. I held her out over the black water, then let go. Then the whole ship blew up under me. Please, madam, control yourself.
5: Quiet, everybody, quiet!
3: Now tell me exactly what you did.
5: Well, I... Gerald and I danced until after three. I went to my cabin. I was getting ready for bed when I heard two men fighting on deck. I put on a robe, and, and at the door of my cabin, I heard this scream, this terrible scream. I went up on deck, and I, I saw him haul this man out over the water and let go. When the man fell, the blanket came loose. The wind blew it back under the deck. It slammed as right as my feet. And I found the badge. He murdered an FBI man. He's a murderer, I tell you, a Murderer!
3: All right, Sherman, start talking. So I... I told them. I told them everything. I confessed about the pearls, about Therese, about the trunk, about Fowler. Everything. It was after I'd made the confession that the purser told me. They took me down to a little room in the hole, a room with a big, heavy door on it. And that's when the purser let me have it. You know, Sherman, you crooks are all alike. You think you're smart, but you're not. You're dumb. Oh, lay off, will you lay off? Sherman, you got a shock coming to you, a big shock. What do you mean? If you hadn't fought with Fowler, you'd have gotten away with it. There'd have been no scream, no badge, no fight. You could have dropped her overboard. (laughs) You wouldn't have had to wrap her in a blanket. You could have just... just dropped her. Are you crazy? I was there in the cabin with this FBI guy, and he knew. I had to get rid of him some way, didn't I? No, you didn't. What are you talking about? Fifteen minutes more, and we'd have gotten rid of Fowler for you. He'd be down here, and you'd be up in 42A, alone. What are you trying to say to me. We got a wire from the New York City police instructing us to arrest Fowler for impersonating an FBI agent and blackmailing people on ships. What? Fowler was a fake, Sherman. A crook. So you see, Fowler's murder could have been avoided. And the girls? Well, the girls would probably never have been discovered at all. just heard Wardrobe Trunk by William Irish. The story was adapted for radio by Harry W. Junkin, who also directed the production. David Gothard starred as Babe Sherman. Joe DeSantis played Fowler. Other players included Inga Adams, Bill Lipton, and Ernest Graves. The music was composed and conducted by Dr. Roy Shield. Radio City Playhouse is supervised for the National Broadcasting Company by Richard P. McDonough.
4: This is Harry Junkin again. Next week on Radio City Playhouse, one of the most exciting stories we have ever presented—the story of a vague and indescribable evil that ruins the lives of three very fine people. Be with us next week for Treasure Trove, Attraction 32. Next week on Radio City Playhouse. Good night, everybody.
3: Speaking, this is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
0: That was an episode of NBC Radio City Playhouse and the episode called Wardrobe Trunk here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. Well, this was a listener pick, and uh, Joshua was the one that brought it to us from the listener. Have you listened to NBC Radio City Playhouse before this or know anything about it? No, this was
1: a first for me. Me too. Which is always kind of fun, and Mm -hmm. I thought uh, production values and writing and performance... Well, mm-hmm. the French lady was a bit over the top, but <laughs> the lead
0: sold this.
2: I yep. love the French lady. <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: usually kind of snotty about dialects. <laughs> I thought she was great. I did enjoy a lot of things in this, absolutely. I, right before we started recording, I looked at you guys and said, oh, this is the one I took very little notes on. That's usually a good sign. It means that I'm just listening. So I went back and listened to this again, and, oh, i got to take some notes, some interesting witty something, <laughs> some kind of insight, something, and I just started listening again. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I stopped and went, well, maybe that's the best compliment I can pay yeah. this. Uh,
1: Sometimes you just want to go, it was so suspenseful! That's
6: all I <laughs> have to say.
1: <laughs> but I will dig a little deeper and mm-hmm. say that, again, David Gothard, I think is the last name of okay. the actor who played Sherman. I thought he did a phenomenal job. He sold yeah. this level of hysteria, yeah. uh, this level of panic and he's really unlikable but he also has to get the audience to empathize with him enough in his performance to feel suspense along with him Mm -hmm. right because if you just hate him you're going to be locked out of the tension correct um and so it's a difficult role to do and i thought he did a great job i did
0: write down the uh not the actor but the character the way it's written Mm -hmm. it's just a really terrible at playing things cool Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But see, I. It's really unnerving how you keep to dial it back, man. Dial it back. He's cool. cool. He's just not cool at all. (laughs) Nothing in the trunk.
1: (laughs) 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 What I loved about it is that. It felt real because he was so bad at it. And it had that snowball effect like in real life. You start out like, I got this. I'll just put this conveniently tiny French woman in my wardrobe trunk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What could go wrong? And then there's that whole segment where he acknowledges that I tried to get it into the cab, and they said, you got to put it in the back, but I wanted to ride in front. And then they didn't want to take it on the train, and he realizes, like, anybody who's later asked about me will totally remember who I am. So we get enough in his head that you see why he slowly panics. He starts out with a plan, and it every possible way
0: goes wrong. Until so... you're right,
1: he's just hysterical, like, don't look at my trunk! <laughs>
0: he was a little hysterical at the beginning. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. From an acting point of view, from the uh, the performance that you loved, could it have been subtler and more real? It's seen, there are points where I thought, ah, it's a little too obvious. Like, wouldn't people be saying, you all right, man? I mean, I think people did a couple of times, but too much maybe or not. Tim?
2: Well, exactly as you said, it had to be big enough so that people's reaction to, like, there's something wrong with this guy is accurate that we know who we're supposed to trust in that Mm -hmm. evaluation. Yeah. It's part of the script that he sends off these vibes. So he had to play the script.
1: Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying is maybe with a different script you would play it differently, but the actor had to play what was there. Because if he played it too cool, he wouldn't have all these people continually throughout the entire script responding. So maybe it's more of a script thing you're pointing It is a
0: script thing, because the only way then to do it would be the narrator. You need narration to tell you, you know, he's sweating profusely, he's holding it in, he's thinking, can they tell, can they tell... Those kind of narrative things would help us through that. Mm-hmm. And I think with radio, you know, and run, we run into this all the time, this problem of we only have audio to deal with. Mm-hmm. And how do we convey certain things? And sometimes it fails and sometimes, understandably, that's really hard to convey that in just a radio or audio format. In this case, I think that it works because it just allows him to tell us that he's freaking out.
1: Yeah, I also think the hysteria sets off a certain like human emotional non-brain response, right? And 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 I think that performance is important to it. Uh-huh. He also is hysterical from the top because he strangles her and doesn't mean to. And at first there's a little bit I had that moment he- where I went where I went no, he's he's an unreliable narrator. He's saying like I only strangled her for ten seconds. jeez, you know, and uh, that one
2: jumped out at me because I gave it a second listen, and he says at the top of the, the smallest woman I ever saw mm-hmm. uh, and then calls her small and fragile, which I very much took that as a smart bit of writing to indicate that this guy is exactly, as you say, an unreliable narrator. He's already defending himself for a crime he hasn't even told us he's committed yet.
1: Yeah, so maybe there's a little question mark there. But I think for the most part, I think probably supposed to believe him that he didn't mean
0: to kill her. You just said something earlier. You said he's a, he's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I I found myself rooting for him. I found myself... On his side. Oh my God! You were so close to being rich, <laughs> so close to being rich, just with a few stolen what pearls, right? You mm-hmm. know, just so close, man. Oh no, not that. No, and I never ended up disliking him. And I believe a hundred percent that. Oh no, I killed her. Like, how did that happen? Like, mm-hmm. unintentional. And she was extremely frail. Or did she have a bad heart? Was that the deal?
1: Well, he says he must. She must have had a bad okay, heart because right. normally you can strangle people for up to thirty seconds and they're just fine. <laughs> (laughs) He has this really specific amount of time.
2: Like, geez, we're going to take a strangling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought that the point of the story was that he was not a bad guy and that we're supposed to be rooting for him.
1: I would say he is a bad guy. And the brilliance of the performance is that it gets us over that
2: bump right. of, of really for him because he yeah, started up by saying like i blackmail people
0: i oh yeah yeah he yeah.
2: does say that and, and then he's
1: about, like oh gosh he, i didn't mean to kill her all i was gonna do is steal is break her heart steal these pearls have her lose her job or possibly go to jail for
0: a crime she didn't commit yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That? so that's what i'm getting at no big deal i, I that's weird though that now that i forgot totally that opening line of yeah i'm a i'm a jerk and and he describes all the things he does uh, how quickly i forgot that till now tim because uh, I, and i wrote in my one of my few notes is i i just rooting for the guy yeah. i really wanted him to get away with it
1: charming he's appealing yeah and it's the irony at the end it's another blackmailer con man yeah. who does him in the guy uh, posing as an fbi officer and i wonder did you guys see that coming i knew there had to be a twist mm-hmm. but i totally
2: bought I that was an that. fbi or a cop i don't know if he's fbi but no i did not uh, that I character it, no. i loved to bits yeah, you, you won't die laughing. <laughs> He's
1: he, there's some classic hard boiled <laughs> yeah. stuff s- slips into here and particularly with Fowler.
0: I, I was convinced one hundred percent that he was a cop. I Me did too. not yeah. see a twist. I thought we were down the tracks of a straightforward guy just keeps running into the wrong people at the wrong time, and here was a guy that was uh terrible at hiding his freaking <laughs> yeah. out that this cop was going to catch him. And so when it wasn't, I was very, ah! And that's really what sold me on this. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, there was parts of this I did not care for. Nice. And it's
2: exactly, I'll identify it, because it is now a cliche based on this, which I'm sure at the time was what made it so popular that it became a cliche of like that agonizing, slowly pulled the key out, this narrating beat by beat, to prolong a fairly simple, mechanical
0: thing Mm -hmm. that is in a tense circumstance. To create tension, and it's insincerely creating... Yes, yes. ...attention that... Which I think, if it weren't kind of a cliche
2: now, if I was just hearing this for the first time in the time... It would work much better for me,
0: but... We've heard it a lot, especially in the last 46 weeks of the show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, Cornell Woolrich is an originator of this genre and of this type of suspense, too. So I wouldn't call it a shortcoming of the actual thing. It's just, in my experience of listening it, it felt a little cliched. But it's like stuff like
1: when he has to reach into the bag, feeling around the dead body for a clean shirt... The, the, the mm-hmm. level of desperation, and again, I might have to read the script by itself and separate mm-hmm. it from the performance to see, you know, no, wh- that, which that it is. What but there's some there's some amazing tense scenes like that that are just mm-hmm. agonizing, and I think those are those scenes that put you in his place, even though you don't like him. You can't possibly help but think of yourself because he's so trapped, and we have this human fear of being trapped.
0: Any other notes from you, sir?
1: Yeah, there were some funny um, hard-boiled lines that I loved because I'm a huge fan of. uh, If we weren't doing a horror and mystery (laughs) podcast, it would be a hard-boiled podcast because I I love this stuff. But uh, great lines like, the steward's opposition flattened like an ice cream under a (laughs) blowtorch. And a very hard-boiled line, not as over the top as that, but it really sounds perfect when um, he's describing Fowler when he says, now he was baiting me like they'll bait any guy on the other side of the fence, not sure, just suspicious and hoping for the worst. It really captures that yeah, yeah. quality in hardball literature of just like, when you're telling it from the criminal's point of view, this feeling of persecution, mm-hmm. and then I'm just a guy with a bad luck, and how dare he suspect me, even though
2: I murdered this woman. <laughs> you know? I suspect me of having stolen goods in my trunk when it is clearly a dead body. <laughs> 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 and so
1: those are the little details that I think come from Cornell Woolworths that really elevate this. There is one moment that took me out of it though when um he is taking the tiny French woman out to throw her overboard, and he says uh, she was like a doll, a beautiful sleeping doll, and just somehow I doubt that after being like crunched <laughs> up like an accordion in a wardrobe right. and decomposing for several days. That was, you know, maybe a little l- different than.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like an Amish doll with no face. <laughs> uh. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed this. It's uh, it is an old trope of uh, hiding the body, though you know, like. Uh, but uh, what I think saved it for me is the cop that turned out not to be a cop. Did
2: this work for you guys? That moment of and then the ship exploded underneath me.
1: Yeah, there might have been a different meaning for that, and then the whole ship blew up. Blew up, yeah. Under me, everyone started running around, screaming and yelling because the sounds come in. But you're right; for that mo- there was that moment where mm-hmm.
2: I went wow,
1: <laughs> that's not the, the twist I expected. They hit
2: an iceberg. Yeah, like, I threw this body overboard board, and then it blew up and sank the ship. <laughs> like, that is an amazing story.
0: Don't you know? Yes, I've Dead never... bodies mixed with seawater.
2: <laughs> Boom.
0: <laughs> we did it in Science in 8th
2: grade. A <laughs> baking soda, and
0: then they <laughs> yep, sink yep. and come
1: back. Last quick comment. I want to say I prefer the original published title of this story which was the dilemma of the dead lady
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: much pulpier yeah uh, yeah yeah and, and a little more alliteration but uh, i understand why they went with the wardrobe trunk <laughs>
0: So they wouldn't get sued, or why would they?
1: Well, actually, this name was changed when the story was published in a different magazine
0: before Uh, it was even adapted. Well, there you have it. Thank you uh, for our listener. Jake. Jake, for bringing that to us. It's fantastic. It was uh, awesome. And we got to hear another series that we'd not heard before. Going to listen to more of that. Yeah. See if it's any good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, You should go here. Ghoulishdelights.com. Not
2: only can you find more episodes of this very podcast, you can also learn about the live performances we do because we will perform live versions of some of these old classic scripts. And you can also find some contact information so that you can make requests if you'd like to. Uh, You can be one of these awesome people who have sent in requests and then we do that show on the air. It might take us six months,
1: but we'll do it. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting for us to record your episode, write a review about the podcast. Go to <laughs> iTunes. It really helps us out to get more uh, eyes on our podcast. Thank you, guys.
0: Well, the next one is yours, Tim.
2: Yes. Uh, next week, I'm saying no to listener requests and insisting we do one of my own choice uh, from Suspense in honor of H.P. Lovecraft's impending birthday, we'll be doing the Dunwich Horror.
3: Until then...
6: Look out!
3: Fowler had been standing behind me. I knew by the way the steward's opposition
5: flattened like ice cream under a blowtorch that Fowler had placed his badge behind my back.